Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, so a couple plugs I want to throw in or a couple uh, updates to give you. First week of university went great. Um, very overwhelming, but I settled in and figuring out, you know, what's what and how things are supposed to work. And there's still weeks ahead of that, of still figuring things out. But at least I've got a pretty good idea now of what this um, trimester or this term is going to bring in these two modules or classes that I'm taking. And um, the itology or etology uh, of coercive control is the first module and research methods in psychology is the second one, and that's the more difficult one, I think. But um, the coercive control lecture was, um, the first one was a lot of review for us, and uh, for, at least for me, because of, you know, the, my familiarity with that subject, um, you know, in detail. So that was good. I'm very happy about that. And I'm, but there are definitely some things we covered that I am keen to learn about, such as the British-UK law about coercive control that is currently on the books over there. It has a lot of potential to, put, to go after cults or cultic groups. And I'm curious about how we're more we're going to learn all about that law and how that works and and um, more about coercive control, of course. So anyway, good times. I'm finally going to get to some of these books back here. I haven't read all these books. And in fact, this one, uh, Caldini's uh, The Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, is one of the ones that uh, I'll be reading right away on the coercive control class. So anyway, good times on that. And the other thing I wanted to plug real fast was the podcast this week, Sensibly Speaking podcast I posted yesterday, is about Operation Paperclip. Hardly anybody's watching it. I suspect it's because most people don't know what Operation Paperclip is. But it's actually a very important part of our modern history. And uh, almost everything in your life is touched by what happened in Operation Paperclip as a result of that, at least here in the United States and certainly technologically around the world. Uh, fascinating that we brought Nazis over to America post-World War II as scientists, and they were scientists, and we utilized them as such across a number of disciplines, not just rocket science, but uh, aerospace engineering, medicine. I mean, there were a lot of fields these guys touched, and, um, and there are some real ethical dilemmas there. And I thought, what better you know, subject matter to dive into doing a podcast on ethical dilemmas and the and the problems with that than that one. That was something that just absolutely intrigued me as a point in history and the and the the consequences, you know, intended and unintended of of what happened from the from that process. So we went into quite a bit of detail about that. Dr. Jeff Wassell joined me. And now that I've given a little bit of uh, information about it, I hope you guys will check that out, be more interested in that. So, that being said, let's now get on with your questions. Michael Yoder, I watched your interview with Christian Zerko and had a question about missed withholds. I've never heard that term. What did LRH say about them in the Scientology scriptures? What are they, and why are they so damaging to people? Okay, Michael, thank you for asking me about this. And here is the definition given out of one of the Scientology dictionaries for a missed withhold. An undisclosed contra-survival act, which has almost been found out by another, 
but not disclosed, leaving the person with the withhold in a state of wondering whether his hidden deed is known or not. Okay, so you do something bad. I almost find out about it. I don't find out about it. You don't confess, but I make you wonder whether or not I know. And it creates this mystery in your mind that is a little crazy-making. It's like a little splitter in your mind the more you wonder about it, right? And you can end up with this uh, phenomena that Hubbard lists out about 15 different indicators or signs of a missed withhold, one of them being that you become intensely critical of the subject of the withhold, right? So if you have been doing something bad to your spouse, let's say, and I'm not even going to give a specific of what it could be because, you know, the litany of them, uh, there could be anything from, you know, stealing, abuse, whatever. Let's say you do something bad and um, your friend doesn't know anything about it, mentions your spouse to you, Hey, how's they doing, right? Or, hey, how's it going? Or, are they okay? Haven't heard from them in a while. Something maybe a little more suspicious-making question. Some some kind of, are they okay? I haven't heard from them. I haven't seen them. Or, you know, are they all right? And such questioning might create the mindset in, in you, the person who's, who's committed this overt, this bad thing, who's done this horrible thing to this person, now you're wondering whether your friend knows about what you've done to your spouse. That's the missed withhold. That instance right there when it's happening of them making you wonder whether or not they know, that's the missed withhold. Okay, And Hubbard said that a missed withhold will cause you to be critical of that person who is missing your withhold. Not your spouse. You're already, you know, you've committed this over against your spouse. You've done this bad thing. But because your friend is making you wonder whether or not they know about what you did to your spouse, now you don't like them either. And it's not necessarily a full-blown, you know, okay, I don't want to ever talk to you again. But you're going to find yourself thinking, "Mm, why don't you mind your own business? You know, leave me alone. Stop asking me these questions. Why are you asking me that? You know, these kind of reactions when you're getting a rise out of a person like that by asking them seemingly innocuous or innocent questions, you're missing their withhold. (laughs) It's how this is, is explained in Scientology. Now, in real life, there could be a lot of reasons why you might be pissing somebody off or annoying them or upsetting them. But a missed withhold, I mean, this is a real world phenomenon. I mean, the nervousness that we feel when we wonder whether or not somebody knows what we've been up to, that's real. That's not something Hubbard imagined or made up. He just gave this name to it that we don't have in in English. We've got, you know, sin, transgression, moral transgression, or or immoral act, or in Scientology, overt act. We've got words for, for for the bad thing you did, but we don't really have a word in English for that feeling you get when you're wondering specifically about whether this person in front of you or on the phone or even through an email, I mean, it doesn't have to be an in-person live communication in order for it to be a missed withhold. Somebody could write you an email and miss your withhold. Somebody could, you could be reading a novel and the author of the novel could miss your withhold, right? If you're reading a book about 
about somebody who did something very much like what you did, and you're sitting there going, oh my God. Now, that's a bit of a stretch, though, because a key component of it is that you have to wonder, credibly wonder, whether the person who's missing your withhold actually knows or not. And, you know, the author of a book might might re-stimulate or make you think of the withhold, but the author of the book is not necessarily going to make you, is not necessarily going to directly miss your withhold, but it could happen. It could be that that could occur. Um, Okay, so regardless of how it happens, regardless of what communication medium is being used, that's the missed withhold. And Hubbard said that all of the frailties of human relations and the criticalness and the carping and the, the even even blowing, even taking off and leaving all come from, all stem from an accumulation of missed withholds. It's not your overts that do you in, it's the missed withholds that do you in. Now, of course, in the sequence of events leading up to a missed withhold, you have to have committed an overt. So we can say your overts are what did you in, but technically speaking in Scientology, according to Hubbard's dogma on this, it is the missed withholds that actually build up the resentment and the ire and the, and I want to kill you. That's all coming from the fact that people are making you wonder whether or not they know what a bad person you are, and the, and the spin and the and the the whole like dry, you know introversion and oh my god do they know do they not know all of that you know and all of the um, the difficulties between people pretty much stem only almost exclusively from missed withholds. Hubbard would say that all of um, cancel culture, all of the offense that people feel, all of this like that that riles up from people, it all comes from missed withholds. And um, those kind of blanket statements are pretty culty, and that's why, you know, that's why it's not really true. However, <laughs> again, um, it is a real phenomena of of human beings. and uh, and I do believe that these these uh, missed withholds have, I, I think there's something to it, actually. It's one of the very few things in Scientology that Hubbard that I thought Hubbard actually got kind of right. Um, there's a lot of stuff mixed up with this that is totally, totally wrong. So don't, you know, don't don't take me too far with this. I'm not saying Hubbard's, you know, all of the stuff that Hubbard wrote about sec checking and missed withholds and all of this is all true. I'm just saying. He was definitely hitting on something in terms of how people get upset with each other. So that's that's what this is. And uh, there you go. Kevin Zhang, what are your thoughts on no-knock versus knock and announce when it comes to SWAT teams and drug raids? I, for one, think everything should be done the knock and announce way. I don't do or sell drugs, but I do own firearms, and I do keep one loaded and stored safely near my bed. If someone gave the police my address, either by mistake or on purpose, and they busted in without announcing themselves first, I would be dead. How are we to know it's police knocking down the door at 3 a.m.? It's hard to concentrate and clear your head after being jolted out of a deep sleep, so I fully understand people mistaking police for intruders. 
Yeah, thanks for this question, Kevin. This is obviously in relation to or in regards to Breonna Taylor, the the, the death of her and the, the whole response to that. Um, and the town where she was in apparently uh, passed, uh, the city council passed a law and, and banned the use of no-knock warrants in that area now. I think that was in Louisville, Kentucky. So... Okay, I do not agree with this. I uh, with these no knock warrants. I don't think that these are warranted. <laughs> I don't think they're a good idea. Um, and I looked this up and was reading up on it a little bit. And this is the idea with no knock warrants is that you're trying as a police officer to prevent the destruction of evidence. That's why you would want to have the element of surprise busting into somebody's house is you're going to get the evidence before they can destroy it. You're going to stop them from doing that. And of course, a lot of these cases of no-knock warrants get executed in the middle of the night uh, when they're going to have people, exactly as you said, Kevin, disoriented, confused, not aware or awake, not sure what's going on, half asleep. This is a really, really bad place for people to be because if you want to kick in a fight or flight like that, then do it when somebody's half asleep. They're not consciously, rationally going to be able to, to give you a thinking, rational response. There's just no way. The second you're jolted out of sleep, you are not in a, oh, let me calmly figure out and review the situation here and see what's happening. That is not anybody's frame of mind when they are first woken up, especially out of a out of a deep sleep in the middle of the night. But regardless of whether it happens at night or in the day, um, the problem with this is you're supposed to identify yourself as a police officer. Even you know, with a no knock, you're not knocking first. You're not alerting the person that you're there. Suddenly, you're just busting into their house. And then you're supposed to be saying, police. This is the police. We are executing a warrant. You're supposed to identify yourself, right? But you have to identify. What that, that Saying words, shouting words into the air is not identifying yourself if the other person can't or doesn't hear you or can't process what you're saying. And certainly at three in the morning, they can't. So uh, this idea that you're going to bust into a house, identify yourself, and the, and the people there are just going to calmly go along with it is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And unfortunately, um, you know, I am pretty supportive. If you guys have watched my content on the training or retraining of police, which I put up, put up after the George Floyd incident and my views on that, I've been very, very clear about the fact that I support the police. I want the police to do a better job. I want them to get competent and trained and proficient at their tools and at their job. But this is one of those tools that I don't, I, I think is been abused. Let's just put it that way. I don't know that no knock warrants are never called for. I, I really feel a little uncomfortable making a blanket statement that there should never be the execution of a no-knock warrant. But I found it interesting that they have substantially increased over time. One estimate that there were 1,500 annually in the early 1980s, whereas there were 45,000 no-knock warrants issued in 2010. And that was 10 years ago. I don't know where they're at now. Um 
As far as some of the case law on this and looking at how this came about, it really was in order to prevent the destruction of evidence. Um, and they are issuable in every state except Oregon and Florida. Both of those states have banned or, or not allowed them by law. 13 states explicitly authorize no-knock warrants and 20 additional states you can get them. So... Um, so this is happening across a multi, you know, across the United States. And ah, here we go. Yeah, the number of no-knock raids has increased from 3,000 in 1981 to more than 50,000 in 2005, according to Peter Kraska, a criminologist at Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond. Raids that lead to death of innocent people are increasingly common. Since the early 1980s, 40 bystanders have been killed according to the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. In Utah, no-knock warrants uh, make up about 40% of all warrants served. In Maryland, get this, 90% of SWAT deployments were to serve search warrants with two-thirds through forced entry. Um, from 2010 to 16, 81 civilians, 13 officers died during SWAT raids, including 31 civilians and eight officers during execution of no-knock warrants. And if you go through some of the examples of um, where they've screwed this up, you find catastrophic and tragic circumstances where children, women, innocent bystanders, people who never committed any crime have been um killed or mutilated or um, harmed permanently, physically, for, you know, for the rest of their life, they're going to carry these scars and trauma of these pol incompetent police. So let me stress, incompetent police who put the wrong address down, have sometimes knowingly issued false information to judges in order to get these warrants. I mean, I cannot even begin to describe the you know, ire that is well-deserved to incompetent police officers who cannot just take the time to do their damn job and get it right. So that's a problem, right? And I am not going to be uh, sympathetic about that because when you're going after a criminal and you harm the criminal in, let's say, a firefight or the criminal, you know, presents a weapon or something like that. Well, I'm not going to necessarily have a whole lot of sympathy for that criminal. But when you go busting into some person's house, like, let's say my apartment in the middle of the night and shoot my wife, do you think I'm just going to let that go by? I mean, that just no big deal. And one for one for one for one for one, these police officers who murder people in their sleep, in their homes, in their apartments, get off scot-free. Completely disgusting. It is unacceptable. Incompetence needs to have consequences when it comes to law enforcement. Anyway, you can see I'm a little riled up about that. So, um, yeah, I get a little upset reading through the history of this and some of the uh, gross negligence and and misbehavior, you know, on the part of these police officers has has been quite upsetting. And there are just case after case after case after case. You can uh, take a look at the Wikipedia page on this if you want or do some uh, other deep dive research. There's a ton of articles here to dive into where police officers have totally screwed the pooch on this. And this is, a, this is one of those cases where um, I don't know that, the, that they should be 
banned. Okay, I want to be clear. I don't know. I maybe I'm walking my my original statement back a little bit, but I want to be clear. I think that what we have here is a tool that has been taken grossly out of context and has been now become the standard. This is how we're going to execute warrants now um, in cases where it was never called for, never should have even been intended to be that way. But now that's what we've got is police officers just running rampant with this power and abusing it. Um, so I'm so I'm I'm loath to say never because I can think of a few instances where you would actually want this power and you would want to use it wisely by, you know, making sure you're actually going to the right place. Um, you know, a place where crimes are occurring, where you have actual evidence that crimes are occurring or, you know, such a strong suspicion of it that it's, you know, that it's crystal clear that this is one of those circumstances. And, um, and clearly we've seen police abuse that power. So I think it should be probably taken away from them for a while until they get their heads on straight and until we get these guys trained and competent at their jobs. And, um, I just, you know, there is no excuse for murdering innocent civilians, ever. There's no excuse. There's no rationale. There's no reason it's okay. And if, uh, as we see with, you know, cases like this, where you give police the authority or power to do something and they abuse it, well, you know, it's like, uh, like a little kid. You take it away until they grow up and learn how to use it right, and then you can give it back to them. So... That's what I have to say about that. Hey everyone, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly, truly believe in. And that service is called BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp. And they are available through betterhelp.com. And this is a service that connects you with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up, actually you use the link <laughs> that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up. And this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video, okay? Any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. That is in the description to this video. 
And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. Beth Todd. Just recently discovered your podcast. Having grown up in a conservative Christian family here in Australia, I have been interested in your discussions. With all the chaos currently happening in the U.S. and the SCOTUS replacement, Amy Barrett's membership of People of Praise is coming under scrutiny. Has anyone closely examined this group as to whether it's a cult or maybe just has cult-like philosophies? Hey, Beth, thanks for the question. I actually did, we did our uh, Critical Conversations show this week all about this. And if you guys didn't get a chance to see it, go ahead and check that out. But I thought I would address it in the Q&A because I know a bunch of you guys don't watch my Critical Conversations show. And it's on Wednesday nights, and it would be great if you guys could come and uh, even call in. I love talking to you guys. Um, Anyway, so uh, as far as this question goes, much to, I think, some people's surprise, I could not not determine with any degree of, of um, positiveness that the people of praise is a destructive cult. And in fact, it does not check off a bunch of the boxes that we have for these groups if we use the, um, the checklist from Yanya Lalich or we walk through Lifton's eight points of, um, of thought reform. Um, you know, it, the, the people of praise is, a, is an ecumenical group. That means they, they welcome and are trying to work with people of different denominations of Christianity. They're all, they all obviously have to be Christians, and in fact, charismatic Christians, where they believe in um, speaking in tongues and various other, you know, kind of extreme sort of religious uh, expression, let's say. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of Pentecostal matched up with Christians, matched up with Catholics, because the, the people of praise are like a Catholic group that brings these um, Pentecostal and sort of Protestant sort of practices in, if I understand these, these words right. I'm throwing a lot of words around, and um, basically, they're pretty intense believers. They're, they, um, I think, differentiate themselves from evangelicals. I don't think they identify as evangelical, but they are definitely, definitely very hardcore believers, but they are not insular, isolated. They do not live cloistered lives on individual little communities. It's not like that. Um, they do have some what we could call questionable practices in terms of, um, you know, there, there are some things. There's a spiritual leader assigned to individuals in the group. If you're a single woman, you're going to have like a, or, or a single man, you'll have somebody assigned to you. But if you're married and you're the wife, well, your husband is your spiritual leader and, a, and counselor and advisor. And the, he, and the head of household, the husband, the man, always a man is the spiritual, you know, leader of the house. So um, that we know from Gothard's groups and other uh, extremist groups that that kind of thinking can open the door to abuse, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an abusive situation. If you have a husband who's got a fairly rational, sane head on his shoulders, and he doesn't go, you know, let that kind of authority or power go to his head— then he can advise his wife and kids just fine, right? As a as a husband, father, and you know, main breadwinner of the house or whatever. Um, but uh, that can and has opened the door to spousal abuse, domestic abuse, etc. Um, 
But it's not clear from people of peace whether that's a common thing in that group. There's not lots of former members or people who've been part of that group stepping up and stepping out and talking about it. I didn't find Facebook groups about this, uh, people of peace or ex-members making videos. There's not really a lot of that. And it's a kind of porous group, you know. They're, they're, they also encourage education, including higher education. And while they definitely have traditional views of households, um, the very fact that Amy Barrett uh, is, you know, being nominated for a Supreme Court position and has been a professional judge her, her life and lawyer certainly indicates that this is not a group that is all about, you know, keeping people stupid and ignorant. I have my own opinions about Christian dogma and its intent, its basic intent in terms of ignorance, but that's that's a very broad thing. I can't apply that to all these groups and say, okay, well, they're all just cults because I think so. You know, I'm trying to keep this on a on a standard of of does is it this characteristic and this characteristic and this characteristic, and in this case, uh, after having dived into this, I do not see that this is uh, absolutely a destructive cult. It could be. But more information and more study is needed. And I, I did as deep a dive as I could in terms of researching this, reading um, a lot of the information about it is from their website. You know, so that's a problem because there has not been a lot of objective outside criticism or examination or, or uh, analysis of this group. You know, just media reports and the media almost, cons- you know, routinely get it wrong on this stuff. But... I read through all of that to try to come to this conclusion, and that's where it's at. So I hope that addresses your question and gives you a little bit more information about this. I am not in a frame of mind that Amy Barrett is somebody who should be on the Supreme Court. I don't agree with her nomination. I don't think she's an objective person who can separate her religion from her you know, legal mind, but... I could be wrong about that, but it seems pretty clear that she is rabidly anti-abortion, for example, and I believe she'd throw Roe v. Wade right out the window. I could be wrong about that, though. That's That part is just my opinion. So, okay, there you go. Cyprian Ivanov, how varied are the experiences in the TRs? Do Scientologists openly talk about how variable the supposedly uniform concepts are? A little bit. There's a, you know, this is one of those things in Scientology which is hampered by Hubbard's introduction of this idea of verbal tech. Hubbard said you are not supposed to be explaining or talking about the technical aspects of Scientology with other Scientologists. You're supposed to read what it says. You're supposed to refer back to what it says in the written materials or in the lecture notes, like the transcripts. And that's what you're supposed to refer to if somebody has a question or needs clarification or doesn't understand something or they don't know about something. You're not supposed to just explain it to them. You're supposed to go get the book, open it up, and say, read this. And that way you cut down. The idea with this was not to be difficult. The idea with this was to cut down on the telephone game. The misduplication and change that occurs when people are explaining concepts of a of an important nature, of a very precise technical nature. And this is another one of those ways that Hubbard was able to get across to Scientologists that this is scientific, it's specific, it's detailed, and it's advanced. This knowledge, this sacred science of Scientology. So, therefore, 
Um, you're not to explain it to one another because you'll get it wrong. You'll miss something. You'll leave something out. You'll add something. You'll screw it up. It's so much easier to just go get the book and show it. So that's verbal tech. And verbal tech is actually can be a crime in Scientology. If they're found doing it over and over again, you'll get in a lot of trouble. So when you ask about, you know, people openly talking about the variable experiences or concepts of the TRs, yeah, they don't do that. You know, it's you you refer to what it says. And Hubbard's description of the TRs is very, very simple, right? The purpose is to, you know, be there, not do anything else but be there, you know, for for whatever length of time. So um what does that mean to be there? Well, that's where you pop open your dictionaries and you're clearing up the word be and you're clearing up the word there and you're trying to figure it out. You know, is this Buddhist meditation where I'm supposed to sit quietly and not have any thoughts going through my head? And this was actually a problem I was having way back in the in when I first joined staff. Excuse me, and I went down to training to Los Angeles to do the TRs as part of the classes that classwork that I was doing down there. And I was having I was just doing my nut trying to do this because I was trying to sit there and not think of anything for two hours. That is very hard to do, <laughs> in case you were wondering. Um, well, my dad and mom came and visited me at one point, and they were pretty much already like on the fence, although I didn't know that. They didn't even know it yet. But my dad listens to me. We go out to dinner. You know, they took me out to dinner, and I was on full-time training down in L.A., and so they had come to visit me, and they listen to me talking about this. I'm saying, yeah, I'm having these all these troubles trying to get through the TRs, TR0. And my dad says, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You're trying to sit there and not think about anything. What? You can't do that. This isn't, this isn't meditate. What? You know, it's just, it's be there. Well, you're sitting in a chair. You're being there. What else is there? I mean, what else is there to it, right? So he was kind of giving me all this verbal tech, kind of explaining to me how it should be done. And he even went so far as to say, look, when I sit there and do TRs, I sit there and I run through all my problems in my head and go, oh, yeah, I got to solve this, got to solve that, got to solve the other thing. And then when I'm all done with that, I realize, oh, yeah, here I am. I'm still here. I'm being there, right? I mean, the very practical sort of my body's there, so I'm there, right, kind of thing. And I was making it out to be this big spiritual exercise. And my dad thought that was crazy. Now, is my dad right? Who knows, right? Who knows? Hubbard never said, sit there and don't think anything. But somehow I got that idea in my head. And maybe I got that idea in my head from some other person explaining to me what it meant. And this is one of those careful, crazy things in Scientology that people get mixed up in where you have an idea of how this thing is. Let's say, for example, the TRs. Let's say I I believe... Let's say I'm sure, I'm not wondering, I'm sure that you should not be thinking any thoughts while you're doing TR0, while you're just sitting there either with your eyes closed or eyes open. You're sitting there staring at somebody else or you're sitting in a chair for hours on end and you're not supposed to think of anything and I'm sure I'm right. That's what be there means. So if I sit down with another Scientologist who has some confusions about this, well, I will sit down with them and I won't have to explain it to them, but they won't 
if I clear up the word be and there with them in a dictionary, I'm going to make sure they come away thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Or I'm going to try to push them in that direction, you see. So that's kind of how the experience, you know, or the the ideas of how people experience these things differently go from one person to another to another. Because let's say I'm doing that. Let's say I'm word clearing. Let's say I'm sitting down across from this person who's got these questions, and I'm clearing up the words, and they're starting to say, oh, yeah, okay, so I have to sit here and not think of anything. All right. And let's say the course room supervisor is standing there and he hears this and he has been supervising TRs for years and he's heard everything people are going to say about this and he's got his idea of what these words mean and what this is all about and he says what what are you talking about let's say he says the same thing my dad does right what what are you talking about where does it say in here that you don't have to think anything that you don't have to think any thoughts and the guy goes, well, let's just be there. You know, you're just being there. What does be mean, right? And the soup goes, yeah, what does be mean? Because you don't get it if you think it means sit there with no thoughts. So then you could have another interpretation piled on this, but because it's from an authority figure, I will have to accept it, and this person will have to accept it, and we will sit there and re-clear these words so that we now are thinking about it the way he is demanding we think about this. So that's kind of how the propagation of people's varied experiences (laughs) happens in Scientology, and I thought you would appreciate a a little breakdown of how that all kind of happens. Christina Hutzel. What was Hubbard's rationale for setting this up and requiring them to always be upstat? It seems bizarre to me that weekly statistics would be incorporated into any sort of spiritual practice. Are upstat statistics used to create the illusion that Scientology is growing to its members? Does requiring rising statistics help ensure that Sea Org and staff work hard to disseminate Scientology? Also, I've read that students in Scientology also have to be upstat. Does this apply to all public, or is it just for those training to be auditors? Okay, Christina, thank you for this question. So, um, the rationale for this is that expansion, growing, taking on more, becoming a bigger being, these are the terms or expressions or ideas that are used in Scientology from the bottom to the top, of the bridge to express that a person is becoming more powerful, more able, more influential, more, um, you know, more powerful, basically. And so all Scientologists are constantly trying to expand. Hubbard makes a point over and over again in Scientology that in this universe, nothing stays the same. It either gets better or it gets worse. And it's assumed in Scientology that when you are expanding and becoming bigger and better, that that is a good thing, that that is survival for you. Now, obviously, you know, a cancer or a virus or, you know, some horrible, awful thing that's expanding and getting bigger is, you know, you don't want that. So it's not everything is supposed to get bigger and better. But when it comes to you, 
in your relationship with your wallet, with your life, with your job, with your kids. I mean, you always want more, 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 more. Hubbard was big, big on abundance. Wanted lots of stuff, right? Whether it was money, women, power, influence, you know, it was more, more, more. And that's the that's a very, very basic philosophical point in Scientology. It's it's really it, it pervades all of Scientology, this attitude of of growth and expansion. So clearly Scientology cannot reach all the people of the world if it doesn't expand. It's got to get bigger. So this becomes a real obsessive point for Scientologists, and Hubbard decided back in the 50s, I think it was, certainly in the 60s, that statistics were the thing that was going to measure people's production on their jobs. And that's where it first came into play, was with staff members and then Sea Org members. If you had a job, you had a statistic, and the statistic either gets worse stays the same or gets better. Only those three things can happen on a weekly basis. So you don't want it going down and you don't want it level. Level means you did the same this week that you did last week. No expansion. So you want it to be getting better. Now, Hubbard also talks about the fact that Excuse me. You get to a point where there are only so many bricks a person can lay. And Hubbard starts getting a little equivocal around there because he sort of implies this idea that, yeah, there's a ceiling to how much you can produce. And you really can't go higher than that. You're, you're flat out. You're working as much as you can. Well, basically, the sort of if you read all of Hubbard's stuff on the policy and on, on how jobs work and how production works, the idea is that at that point, you're supposed to actually get promoted. You're supposed to move up and, and start producing at a higher level at a different job and have people under you because you've proven that you can produce this amazing amount and you can consistently produce that. That is called power. That's a power condition where the graph goes way up and then it stays at this new higher level. And the power formula basically has you sort of figuring out what you did to accomplish that, but really has the idea of moving on or promoting a person whose statistics are like that. And if you had people who could produce power statistics on jobs where they could take it into a whole nother level and by themselves keep it there or somehow organize the activity so it stays at that new high level, well, that's what you want. And then you either reorganize the production lines or the time or you re or you throw some more people in there or you figure out how you can bring it up to the next level from there. But I think you get the idea. So this is something that is um, that is talked about and thought about quite a bit in Scientology's policies. And management is constantly driving for expansion. And, and this is represented by statistics going up. If statistics are going down, things are getting worse and we don't want that. Less money, less resources, less points, less people. Bad. All bad, right? Okay, so um, so up statistics. This is everything I just explained is sort of the theory of it. Now, Hubbard acknowledges that one of the biggest problems with this is that the, the accuracy of the statistic and, and what the statistic is has to measure the actual production of the job. And if it's not, then you can stat push, where you can start pushing for the statistic to go up. You just do whatever it takes to drive the statistic up. 
but things don't really get a lot better. You're just stat pushing. You're just making a graph go up, and it's not really doing anything. It's not really reflected in the real world because it's either a wrong statistic or you are not honestly uh, with integrity producing the statistic. It's a half-shod, slip-shod, no-shod <laughs> job. Um, that's a bad statistic or a false statistic uh, or a stat push. And Hubbard didn't want any of that. While at the same time, of course, he did, because the amount of pressure that was being put down the lines on this, and we see this repeated as a pattern, not only in the Sea Org or in Scientology, but in every company where statistics have been implemented, we have seen instances where people falsify the statistics because their production bonuses depend on it, and they don't know how to get the statistics up honestly or for real or steadily or with, you know, building something that's actually going to last. You know, you can go in and just drive the statistic up, but you tear the whole place apart in the process. This was another problem that Hubbard acknowledged and was trying to deal with uh, through uh, uh, lectures to executives in 1971 uh, on the ship. He had them all come out there and he trained them on this senior executive stuff because he said that, you know, you got to organize things so that you're you're ripping through the production zones and you are getting as much production out of them as you can. But at the same time, you're coming up and fixing what's breaking and you're and you're and you're organizing and preparing for the next round of production that's supposed to happen. And Hubbard created a very strange system that was supposed to kind of be implemented to make this production and organized thing work. But no one in Scientology has ever implemented it to make it work. And it, and the reason why is he might have had some of the right problems in mind, but his solutions did not make any sense. And that's really upper-level, high-level training for executives in Scientology. It's called the Flag Executive Briefing Course. And it's the highest executive training you can do in Scientology. And Hubbard breaks the system down of the product officer and the organizing officer and the establishment officer. And these guys are supposed to be this little system that drives these statistics up and establishes more organization while the production is happening. But the system is so confusing and weird, no one's ever been able to figure it out. And uh, and it's a mess, right? And that is that. So I only went on that little roll, one, to give you information about something I've never really talked about before, and I thought it would be suitable for this question. But two, to also give you the idea of why it is that you can have statistics going up and still not really have any real expansion. Um, because the, t- the statistics have to reflect reality, and you got to do it right. And Scientologists pushed hard, hard, hard to make the stat go up no matter what it takes. Their integrity flies out the window because the number becomes more important than the actual products they're supposed to be producing. And that's how that works. And um, you asked, does this apply in terms of um, statistics or for students? That's all students, not just auditors in training. Not the new guys, but when you go into the academy, the Division Four, the main line, when you're a real Scientologist and not just a, a little fledging Scientologist, then you start keeping track of student points and your completions and stuff, and those are your statistics, and all students keep track of that. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jane Smith, 
Are Scientologists generally environmentally friendly, such as recycling or being conscious of these things? Not really. I mean, it may be at about the same percentages as everybody else. I don't think Scientologists are any more or less aware or environmentally conscious. I think a bunch of Scientologists are on the conspiracy train where they think climate change is a hoax. I'm I'm positive a bunch of Scientologists don't give a you know don't care at all about that. Um, but as far as recycling and trying to take care of the environment and stuff, you know, some do, some don't. Brian J. Torpy. Hey, Chris, is there any correlation between the Sea Org symbol and the seal of the state of Texas? They are very similar. It's the same seal Texas used as a republic, and I was wondering if the sovereignty from the USA Texas had at one time may have inspired LRH, and since he also desired sovereignty, he adopted a similar symbol. Any thoughts? Yeah, Brian, nice idea, but no. Hubbard's Sea uh, Org logo, which I'll throw up on screen here, has absolutely nothing to do with the seal of the state of Texas or its sovereignty. The Sea Org symbol, and I am going to read to you from the scriptures now. The Sea Org symbol, adopted and used as the symbol of a galactic confederacy far back in the history of this sector, derives much of its power and authority from that association. The laurel wreath represents victory, used throughout the history of this planet to crown poets, artists, champions, and conquerors. It not only represents the physical victory, but the series of inner victories achieved by the individual and the clarification and purification of his inner aims and purposes, which led to the outward victory. It is associated with the head the traditional abode of the spirit. The star is a symbol of the spirit. The five-pointed star most commonly signifies rising up towards the point of origin. Thus, it is a potent symbol of alignment to source. The laurel wreath and star in combination signify the victory of the spirit which is rising upward towards the point of origin or source. Its proper color is always gold. And note that the star is not trapped in its victory, but is in the open field towards the top of the wreath, allowing free exit beyond its victory, and that is, in fact, in a field of blue symbolizing truth. So, Hubbard clearly put quite a bit of thought, or somebody did, into the Sea Org symbol, and that is where it comes from. Sandy. It seems like many of the former Sea Org guests you've had on the show have spent time on the RPF. Is it, quote-unquote, normal for Sea Org members to have been on the RPF? Did you know many members that hadn't spent time there? Uh, no, lots and lots of Sea Org members never go to the RPF. It's not, I wouldn't say, it, ooh, boy, it's a little hard. I would say the majority of Sea Org members don't go to the RPF, and um, many, many, many of the people I've interviewed on my show never did the RPF. Only a couple of them did. So, um, so sure, many, but not everybody by a long shot, not even most everybody. 
Okay, guys, that's our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and having me in your home this week to answer your questions. I hope that my answers were satisfactory and interesting and informative and hopefully entertaining as usual. Um, If you are finding this show and my channel of interest to you and the content here informative, educational, and entertaining, then please consider joining me on Patreon or use the PayPal link below to help support this channel. I am um, very much in need of your support these days, and we want to keep these lights on and the show going. And I, um, for one, am just having the, the, the best time talking with you guys and presenting content to you, and I hope you are too. And I hope uh, that if you are able, I know that times are tough right now, tougher than they've probably ever been for some of us. Uh, so if you can, uh, support the show. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.